My name is Jez. I'm also on the leadership team along with Pete. Uh, it's great to see you this morning. Please do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at this chapter, um, Exodus chapter 4. We'll be focusing on the first half of the chapter, um, but we may make a few references to the second part as well. So this is our third week looking at the book of Exodus. It's a fantastic book. We're looking through it together. And this, what we're looking at today kind of follows on from what we were previously looking at. It's part of the same encounter of Moses talking to the Lord. So we've kind of jumped in halfway. Um, but it's a good passage, and it's one for us to think through in terms of our own personal lives. So I just want to ask you a question at the beginning, and we're going to return to this. The question is this. How reluctant are you to follow Jesus when it's risky? How reluctant are you to follow Jesus when it's risky? Okay, well, let's just recap on what's happened so far in Exodus. So Exodus has begun with God's people, the Israelites, enslaved. They are in slavery um, under the Egyptians, and the Egyptians have made them... um, give them the forced labor, um, but they have also been ge- tried to kill them off. Um, there's been a genocidal attempt, uh, particularly with uh, young Israelite boys who have been ordered as government policy to be drowned in the Nile. Now Moses is an Israelite, and he was one of those Israelite boys who might have drowned, um, but he didn't um, because his mum kind of ingeniously put him in a little basket and, and kind of hid him uh, by putting him on the down the river, um, probably to come to him later and feed him and stuff, but so that he wouldn't uh, come under the attention of the Egyptians. The problem was he did come under the attention of the Egyptians. He was found by Pharaoh's daughter, but Pharaoh's daughter did not try to kill Moses. She had mercy on him. She took him as her own son into the court of her father, Pharaoh. And so Moses, though an Israelite, grows up as an Egyptian, even in the court of Pharaoh, himself. Forty years pass, and in his forties, one day, Moses looks out and has perhaps a new perspective, a new sense of the plight of his people. He sees them in slavery, he sees them in oppression, and he decides to side with them more than with the Egyptians. And he wants to do something to rescue them, but it's a bit of a botched attempt. He ends up killing an Egyptian. Uh, Pharaoh puts out a death warrant on him. He goes uh, on the run. Even some of, the own, some of his own people, the Israelites, don't accept him. He ends up running away into exile into a land called Midian, away from home and from his own people. But in Midian, God blesses him. He has a family. He meets Zipporah, his wife. They have children. But another 40 years pass. And so Moses, by the time we're reading what we're reading today, is in his 80s. He's an octogenarian shepherd We find him at the beginning of chapter 3, wandering around the desert in the middle of nowhere, looking after some sheep. But it's there that God meets with him in a profound way. He reveals himself through a burning bush to show himself as the all-sufficient one. He gives his name, the Lord. I am who I am. That is, there is no other God but the Lord. He is the only God. He is self-sufficient, he is self-determining. He needs nothing outside of himself to live, to be sustained, to do anything he pleases. He's dependent solely on himself. And he reveals to Moses 
that he is going to rescue the Israelites, his own people, back in Egypt. He's going to bring them out. He's going to bring them to a new land. But perhaps the shock is, for Moses, the Lord tells him that Moses is going to be the one who brings out the people of Egypt, from Egypt. Now, naturally, Moses has questions about this. Last time he was in Egypt, things didn't go particularly well. It's been a long time. And so he asks a series of questions. And in chapter 3, he asks, well, who am I? Who am I to be able to do this? Um, And he also says, who should I tell um, the Israelite people? You are God. And and those those are questions. And so there's a series of questions or objections or responses that Moses has to this news. And they kind of start off being reasonable, but then they become a little less reasonable. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at um, what we're going to call Moses' reluctance and God's grace. And then later we're going to see our reluctance and God's grace. But let's start with Moses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. We're in the middle of the conversation. And Moses raises an objection to the Lord. He says, what if they don't believe me? That is, the Israelite rulers, in him being told to go and tell them what God has said. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Now, at one level, that sounds like a fair question, because Moses has been away for a long time. If he turns up out of nowhere after, what, 40 years and says to the people, oh, yeah, you know, God appeared to me and he's going to save you, they may be a little bit skeptical. So in one sense, that question in verse 1 seems fair. But God has already told Moses that they will believe him. Look back at chapter 3, verse 16. It says, this is the Lord speaking, Go, he says to Moses, assemble the elders of, the Lord, uh, the elders of Israel and say to them, blah, 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 blah. Then verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. They will listen to you. So Moses has already been told that they're going to hear him and listen to him. But he raises the objection anyway. But look at God's response. He's so gracious and generous. He gives Moses supernatural signs which will validate what he says. So verse 2, he says to Moses to take his staff, just an ordinary, everyday shepherd's staff. It's not magic. He tells him to throw it on the floor. And then look what happens. The staff turns into a snake This surprises Moses. He's not ready for this. He's like, he kind of goes, ah, and then runs away. But then verse four, God tells Moses to pick up the staff, which I imagine he did with a little bit of trepidation. And then uh, the serpent, and it turns back into a staff again. So that's one sign. That's not the only sign. There's a second sign, verse six. God tells Moses to put his hand in his cloak and then bring the hand out, and there is skin disease on the hand. But then when he puts his hand back in and out again, it's healed. Again, a miraculous sign. And then if two signs weren't enough, he gets a third one. He's told to take water from the Nile River that will be in Egypt, pour it on the ground, and it will become like blood. Now, these are all miraculous signs. What's the meaning of the signs? It's hard for us to know exactly what is being communicated by them. What we do know is that they show God's power. Serpent imagery was very much associated with Egypt. The pharaoh would have a serpent on his helmet. If Moses can turn his staff into a serpent and then back again, that would show the Lord's power, perhaps symbolically, over Egypt. 
The hand miracle would show God's power over sickness, even death. And the Nile was often associated with divinity. They were gods of the Nile. And if Moses can change the the Nile's water into blood, that shows God's power over that as well. So in all these things, we see God's supremacy. But that's not enough for Moses. He has another objection. Verse 10. Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So Moses is a little bit worried about public speaking. I know the feeling. Now, the precise issue that Moses has is not obvious to us. It's not clear, because the the original language is is a little bit ambiguous. So did Moses have a stammer? Uh, Was he just, did he struggle to find words in the moment? Was there even a language issue in terms of speaking Israelite or or Hebrew or speaking Egyptian? We we don't know. It's, It's not clear. But whatever it was, it was obviously stressing Moses out. Now, in the past, a few years ago, they used to say to people who struggled with public speaking, there were, used, there were various tips that were given. And one of those tips was, um, if you're worried about public speaking, just imagine everyone in the room you're talking to is naked, and then you won't be intimidated by them. It's not aged well, that advice, is it? Um, and you'll be thankful to know that I've never taken that strategy and used it myself. Now, the Lord doesn't give some weird tip to Moses. He actually gives him the best bit of feedback, the best response Moses could ever receive. Look at verse 11. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So Moses says, well, I've struggled to speak publicly. And the Lord replies, Moses, I I literally created the mouth. This is within my power. It is the Lord who gives and withholds abilities. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Everything happens under his watch. If he wants Moses to do a job for him, he will give Moses the ability to do it, even if he struggles with speech. Now, you think that that's a slam-dunk argument, wouldn't you? And again, it's gracious of God to empower Moses, to show him that he's going to be with him and help him. Verse 12, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. What more assurance could Moses want? But there's one last stand from Moses. Verse 13, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Now, this time, there's no argument. There's no excuse. There's just resistance. And look at the Lord's reaction, verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. Now, we shouldn't think of this as being kind of like the last straw for God, as if, like, you know, his patience kind of wears thin after a while, and Moses keeps talking, keeps talking. You imagine the temperature gauge going up, God's face getting redder and redder, And then finally, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And he's like, ah, and he gets really angry. God does not lose his temper. He does not lose anything. This is a measured, proportionate response to what Moses has done. He has been willfully stubborn. 
Now, Moses is very polite about it. He's all kind of, pardon me, Lord, and everything. He's not quite throwing his toys out the pram, as you might expect. It's very polite, but it's still stubborn. You know, parents in the room, if, if one of your uh, children disobeyed a direct order, uh, or, yeah, uh, you ask them to do something, and they say, no thanks, mummy, or no thanks, daddy, it might be very polite, but you're probably not going to be that impressed. And there's something similar going on with, with Moses here. Now, I get it. At one level, we want to put an arm around Moses, don't we? And we want to accept the fact that he's scared. He's frightened. You know, last time in Egypt, everything went badly. The Israelites didn't seem to accept him. There's a death warrant on him. He's in his 80s as an old man. Of course, he's scared about going back to Egypt. But think about the context here. Think about what's happening in this story, okay? God has just revealed himself to Moses. He's answered every question he's, been, he's given. He's given him supernatural signs. You kind of think, Moses, like, dude, what more do you want? God's given him everything that can reassure him. And remember the setting. Look back at chapter 3 at the beginning. Where is Moses? He's on holy ground. He's taken off his sandals because he's in the presence of a glorious, holy God. He's trembling with fear. He's actually hiding his face, verse 6 of chapter 3. So all this conversation is happening with, with Moses hiding his face from God. You've got this absurd situation. It's like Moses is, is kind of doing this, and he's like, Lord, you know, I, I know you're the sovereign I am, and, and I know that all things are powerful for you, and I, I get it, you've given me all these kind of supernatural signs, and you've clearly shown like all your power over reality, and uh, you've given me all this reassurance about how you're going to be with me, and you've even given me like, you know, a prediction of the future, and, I, and, I, and that's amazing, isn't it? Because not everyone gets that, but I've, I've got that, and you've shown that to me, and uh, you know, this is actually an intimidating situation, isn't it, Lord? Because I can't quite look at your face, and I'm covering myself because I might actually get burned up in my sin in the presence of a holy God because you're so majestic and awesome and you've shown yourself in this kind of massive fire and I can't even look at you right now but uh, you know I know you've all these things you've still reassured me you know you said you're going to be with me and and that's amazing like and and all these good things you've given and I I appreciate that this is a kind of strange thing to say but you know Pharaoh's a bit scary isn't he (laughs) the Israelites are a bit intimidating It's it's an absurd thing and do you ever wonder if Moses might be afraid of the wrong thing? It's irrational, his response. It's irrational. And it's sinful. He's being stubborn. No wonder, it's got, no wonder that God is angry at his response. The truth is that Moses doesn't trust God. That's the bottom line. He doesn't trust God. Even though God has given him every reason and every assurance that he could ask for. And yet, here's the crazy thing. God is gracious to him again. Do you see that in verse 14? He provides Aaron, his brother. Aaron can speak in Moses' place where necessary. Moses can give Aaron God's words. He can be like God to Aaron. Aaron can be the one who actually does the speaking if Moses doesn't want to. It's incredibly gracious. And Moses is going to have someone else with him as he goes to see Pharaoh. So do you see what's happening in this passage? Moses keeps pushing back. 
Moses is resistant and he's reluctant and he's hesitant. The Lord keeps giving more and more and more. He's gracious. He gives him more assurance even though he shouldn't have to. Even when Moses' sin is apparent and obvious, God just keeps giving Moses more and more blessing and assurance. And finally, this seems to help Moses. And eventually, verse 18, he sets off with his family. Even then, God blesses Moses. Let's just quickly um, run through the rest of the story. So, um, verse 19, he assures Moses that the Pharaoh who was king at the time when he left Egypt is dead. And so those who particularly wanted him dead are now gone. He's given the staff, verse 20, which he can use that God will empower for him to do miracles. Verse 21 to 23, Moses again receives predictions of the future from God. God tells him what's going to happen. All of these things are blessings from God for Moses. Now, a couple of comments about verse 24 to verse 26, which is maybe one of the strangest things you've recently read. Now, these are very difficult verses to translate, the, the whole situation with Zipporah um, circumcising her son, um, Gershom, and then doing something strange with the foreskin, um, and then God seemingly wanting to kill Moses immediately after he's promised him that he's going to be with him. It's, it's, they're strange verses. They're very difficult to translate, let alone interpret. So we can't be dogmatic about all of the details, um, But there are three things I think we can say about this episode. Okay, the first thing is this. Gershom, that's the name of Moses' son, should have been circumcised. He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. God has said since Genesis that all Israelite boys are to be circumcised. It is a sign that they are part of God's people. It is a sign that they are recipients of God's promises. So Gershom should have been circumcised already. Secondly, it is Moses who should have circumcised him. So it It is Moses who bears the responsibility for ensuring that his son is circumcised. It is Moses' failing that Gershom is not circumcised. And this is an area of obedience that God is not casual about. To be part of the covenant people, you need to have the covenant sign. Thirdly, Zipporah, Moses' wife, saves the day. We don't know how she knew um, that God was... um, trying to harm Moses. It could be that God was actually trying to harm Gershom, that the language is ambiguous, we're not sure. Um, But whatever it was, Zipporah recognized that her son needed circumcising, and where Moses failed, she stepped in and saved her husband's back. Now, the striking thing about this is not only is she not the head of the family, she's not even Israelite. She's from Midian, which is like another people, and yet she understands as a righteous woman what needs to happen in her family, and she takes action where her, um, her husband has failed, and she bails out her husband. Now, what do we see in this little episode? Well, we see God's demand for holiness and obedience. Again, we see Moses' failings and weaknesses, but we also see his grace through a godly woman like Zipporah. Okay, look at the end of the story. Right at the end, Moses meets his brother Aaron and they reunite. They go and see the Israelite elders. Moses tells them what God has told him to tell them through Aaron, presumably. And then verse 31, the Israelite elders believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, 
They bowed down and worshipped. It turns out God was right all along. They were going to listen to him. And God was trustworthy, and he was even able to use Moses despite all of his failings. And that's the end of chapter 4. Okay. Well, we've seen something of Moses' reluctance and God's grace. Let's just think about how this story relates to us. Our reluctance and God's grace. One of the things I think a principle for reading Exodus, and a principle for coming across someone like Moses, is when we see Moses at his best, he is a picture of Jesus Christ. When we see Moses at his worst, he's a picture of us. And I think this is one of those situations where Moses is cast not in a flattering light, and it's quite revealing about who we are and what we are like. Anyone see themselves in Moses at all? All of us wrestle with God's call on our lives. All of us do. And when I say God's call, I don't necessarily mean kind of things like which city I should live in or who I should marry or what job I should take, the things that aren't always clear. I'm talking about the things that are clear that God has revealed that all of us should do in obedience. Things like taking on responsibility in church and serving others in increasing ways according to the gifts that God has given us. Talking about exercising leadership and influence for Jesus in the spheres that we have at work, at university, at school. We have the responsibility to model and speak of Jesus to others and to point other people to Jesus. We've heard about that already, haven't we? With the word one-to-one. To spiritually lead our children. That is a responsibility that God has given us. And for some of us who are not Christians, the Lord's call on your life is to follow Jesus. We see God's calling on our life to some degree, and it meets our hearts with, our hearts meet it with resistance. We see the potential hardships the discomfort. We think about what we could do, but we ask, what if it will result in pain? What if people will reject me? What if I screw it all up? And like Moses, you may have difficult things in your background that influence that fear. Certain things in your history that might increase your hesitancy to obey the Lord. But also, like Moses, there may simply be disobedience and stubbornness in your heart. I know there often is in mine. We just don't want to step up. Lord, please send someone else, because I don't want to do it. It's the meatloaf effect, isn't it? I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. So how do we address this resistance? Well, we need courage, don't we? We need courage. One of the, in our vision and values that our church has, one of our values is being courageous. We want to be courageous as a church. So how do we get courage? How do we get it? Now think about when you want to encourage other people. Consider, I don't know, a job interview or an exam. The sort of things we tell others, we say things like, I believe in you. You're going to smash it. 
you should definitely go for that job. And that's the things we, we sort of say to others. But the assumption is, underneath those sorts, of, uh, those sorts of comments, is that what people need most when they fear is self-confidence. What they need more than anything is, is kind of self-esteem. That they need to harness their inner strength. They've got what it takes within themselves. And if they just believed it and saw it, then they could reach for the skies and attain their dreams. But then we read Exodus chapter 4. And the message seems very different. Honestly, is there a single thing in this chapter that gives you confidence in Moses? Like anything. Not really. I mean, he's whiny. He doesn't listen. He's stubborn. He's actually failed being an Israelite 101 by not circumcising his son. I mean, this is like the basics if you're a Hebrew. This chapter is not a great look for him. So how is Moses reassured and how are we reassured? Well, notice what God says to him. With every question that Moses has, with every objection, look at what the Lord says and what the focus is on. The focus is not on Moses. It's on who the Lord is. When Moses says, the Israelites will not believe me, God says, look at the signs that I will do. When Moses points out his struggles with speaking, God says, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. Look back at chapter 3, verse 11. Perhaps this just sums it up entirely. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In other words, Moses is saying, I'm a nobody. Like I'm, I'm no one. And what does the Lord say? Oh, Moses, you should have higher self-esteem. Don't do yourself down. He doesn't say that at all, does he? When Moses says, I'm a nobody, God says, I will be with you. That's all the answer that Moses needs. So in every fear, whether for Moses or for us, the answer is not found in ourselves. When we look at the things that God calls us to do and we feel insecure, we feel imposter syndrome, we feel any of those things, We don't look for reassurance in ourselves at all. We only look for them in God. Moses is inadequate in and of himself, and so are you, and so am I. But it is the Lord's strength, his presence and gifting that will help us. There used to be um, a saying in tennis back in the day that the greatest doubles team imaginable was John McEnroe and anybody Okay, John McEnroe and anybody could win Wimbledon. The point being that McEnroe was so good, it wouldn't matter if you could barely hit a ball with a racket. You would still win because he was the one with all the skill and he would be able to guarantee the victory. And it's the same with us and the Lord. It is the Lord who makes the difference in the end as we try and follow our callings. It's not us. And so we don't need to worry about our weaknesses or our fears. As you step out to serve him, he will help you. He is willing to help you. Do you believe that? Perhaps the best proof we have of this is when we look at the life of Jesus himself. 
One of my, uh, it's become one of my favorite books. I've kind of gone on a bit too much about it to some of you. A book called Knowing Christ by Mark Jones. And there's a section where um, it says this. If you could read a book about your life before the events happened, imagine the curiosity, anxiety, and hope that would fill your soul. But what about reading a book not only about your life, but also about your death, down to the minutest details? Such a book might not simply fill you with anxiety, but with dread and terror. Mark Jones's point is this. Jesus was in that position when he came to earth because he read the Bible. He read the Old Testament. He read the scriptures. It means that as a boy, he was reading prophecies about himself, about how he would one day suffer and die. As a boy in a synagogue, he would read Psalm 22 and read about how one day his hands and feet would be pierced and how everyone would abandon him and he would be alone. As a boy, he would read, about Isaiah, read Isaiah 53 and read about how one day he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would even read those words in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? And know that that was going to be his own cry on the cross one day. Jesus knew this. How old was he when he understood that? What must that have been like? He says himself in Luke 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with. That is a reference to his death. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. The Lord Jesus went through his life knowing that his death was coming. And it filled him with constant sorrow. It's been described as a kind of perpetual Gethsemane. You know, he's crying drops of blood. It's like that's just an ongoing thing through his life because he knows what's coming. Jesus knew what obedience to his father would mean. It would mean the cross. And still he did it. He still went. Why? Why was he willing to go through with all of this? Well, to Jesus, the burden of going to the cross was less to him than the burden of seeing us perish. He was willing. Willing to serve. He was a more willing servant than Moses. He is a more willing servant than us. You know, Jesus is more willing to serve you than you are to serve Jesus. That is 100% true. But here's the point. If Jesus was willing to serve you then... How much more willing will he be now to empower you to follow his calling? Do you think Jesus just like died on the cross in the past, was resurrected, and now when he calls you to do something, he's just like, over to you, I'm not going to help out? That doesn't really make sense. It's his past grace that gives us assurance for his present grace in the here and now, in the things that he calls us to. He gave grace to Moses time after time, Will he not give it to us as well? Of course he will. For whatever we're called to do, for whatever is scary, for whatever is hard, in obedience to him, if we follow, he is with us, he will empower us. And this is something I 
I found true in personal experience. I was just thinking, you know, recently, um, there, was a, there, there was a time uh, before Pete started on staff where um, he's a senior pastor, and then in August, the previous senior pastor, Mike, left, and there was this gap from August to November where uh, this guy was as senior as they got on the uh, pastoral team. Uh, and I, I do remember thinking, wow, okay, this, this is a step up, isn't it? Um, and I would have felt, and I did feel at times kind of a bit like, I don't know, apprehensive, worried. But I was struck by, in those times, God's grace, because he's gracious to us and he, and he provides us with so much. One, one bit of grace for me was um, a friend called Nigel, who's a, a pastor in, down south in Surrey. And um, I would phone up Nigel when I didn't know what was happening, like when something happened and I had to deal with it and I didn't know what to do. And I'd be like, Nigel, you've got to help me. Like, what is going on? Please help me. Like, um, give me advice. There's this situation. And I think God's grace to me was shown in people like Nigel being there to help me. It's interesting, isn't it? Moses is given Aaron and he is a, a person who is there to help him. And that's just one of the many gifts that God gives us in his grace when we, when we seek to serve him. He gives us grace. It doesn't mean it's easy. God doesn't wrap us up in cotton wool when we follow his calling. We won't read this, but the next chapter, chapter 5, um, things will get worse for the Israelites and Moses will get it in the neck himself. The Israelite elders who are all like worshipping God at the end of chapter 4 in chapter 5 are going to be kind of grabbing him by his throat. Um, so things aren't, aren't always easy. We will face challenges. But the Lord will bring us out the other side. He's with us. He's with us. So can we doubt that he will give us what we need to obey him? Of course not. So think about what it is that God is calling you to do. What aspects of obedience are you frightened about? And for some of you, that may even be simply to come to Jesus. You may know that if you become a Christian, if you come to Christ, there may be challenges for you. It may be hard. But don't think that if Jesus has died for you, that he won't be with you now. He won't give you what you need. He's there for all of us if we call on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you have given us a saviour in the Lord Jesus who has not just given us past grace, but he gives us present grace. Grace in the here and now. Father, we confess that we have often been reluctant to obey you in areas of our lives. We've been trapped by fear. We've looked to ourselves rather than looking to you and your resources. We've forgotten that you are the great I am. Lord, please forgive us. Have mercy on us. Lord, we thank you so much that Jesus is more willing to serve us than we are to serve him. So may our service just go to that next step. Help us to trust in you, in your Holy Spirit, in Christ to move forward with the calling that you've given us. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.